You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning to you. Um, Steve said, my name's Matt. If we haven't met before, I would love to even remedy that today uh, after the service. It'd be great to uh, get to know you and talk to you a little bit if we've never gotten the chance to do that. Uh, but if you have Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 5 this morning. And if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles uh, that Steve just mentioned a moment ago, page 311 is where you can find, uh, find that in those Bibles. One thing to mention, too, before we move into our, our sermon, um, about 45 or so of uh, the men of our church got to be together Friday evening through last evening for our annual men's retreat. We were up at Camp Hebron. Uh, we had a really good time. It felt like a real gift from God uh, in some of the spaces that we just had there and some of the, the interactions and conversations that flowed from the, the great teaching that we received when we were there too. Um, so we, for those of you who weren't able to make it this year, I just wanted to say we missed you. Uh, we'd love to have you in future years for that. But even just to encourage you um, to ask somebody who did go uh, to this year's retreat and just get a little bit of a, of a recap from, from them and what, uh, what they got to experience while up there. I think that would be a, a gift to you and encourage you, uh, even if you weren't able to come this year. In, uh, in English grammar, uh, a homonym or homonyms are words that have the same spelling and the same pronunciation but different meanings. So, for example, if I were to talk about a crane, I might be talking about the, the large construction apparatus. I might also be talking about the bird. My kids might say something like, as they did yesterday, I like to play in the leaves every fall. But they also might say, I don't like it when my dad leaves. Same word, same spelling, same pronunciation, different meaning. Or when I would say, uh, I'm training today. I might mean that I'm working really hard to prepare for something that's coming up, but I might just simply mean I'm, I'm hopping on the Amtrak and I'm heading to Philadelphia. So you guys are following along with me on this? Same, uh, same word, same spelling, but different meanings, homonyms. And 2 Kings chapter 5 actually gives us an opportunity together this morning to explore a biblical homonym. The word is flesh. Flesh. In one sense in the Bible, flesh means our literal flesh our skin, the, the external part of, of our bodies. And in 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to meet a man called Naaman who has a very serious condition of the flesh, leprosy. But this same word flesh in the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, flesh often means our sinful nature. It, it often is referring to that, that unrenewed part of us that continues to sin, that continues to rebel against God. And so you heard in our liturgy this morning that in that sense, flesh is the opposite of the spirit. The desires of our flesh are in conflict with the desires of the spirit. And we, if you're reading along with us in the New Testament reading plan this year, we were in John chapter 6 yesterday, and John writes there that the spirit gives life, the flesh is no help at all. That's not talking about our skin, the external part of our body, it's talking about our sinful nature. And in 2 Kings chapter 5, we're also going to see this flesh at work in both Naaman and in Elisha's servant, a man named Gehazi. So this is a passage really about Naaman and Gehazi's flesh in both senses of, of that word. But far more than, than a grammar lesson or, or just a kind of a fun play on words this morning, when we think about these two senses of our flesh, we're going to find ourselves wondering, is healing possible? 
Is healing possible? Is there something that can actually be done about my flesh? We are, as we said together this morning in our call to worship, we are a diseased people created with some of the the very splendor and majesty, the, the honor and glory of God himself. Sin has brought disease, sin has brought death to both the physical and spiritual aspects of of our lives. So we are people constantly in need of of healing. The Bible tells us that when we put our trust in Jesus, we become new creations. The old has passed away, the new has come. We, We put our flesh, our sinful nature to death. And even as we said in the words of encouragement this morning, it's good news. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And yet, as any of us here would attest this morning, we still battle the flesh. There are still unsanctified, unrenewed parts of us. Parts that are, that are not yet conformed to the image of Jesus. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to see that God's grace alone can heal our flesh. And can heal our flesh in both senses of the word. God's grace alone can heal our physical flesh, And God can heal our flesh. He can transform us. He can continue to renew us in those places that we remain unrenewed. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, talking about Elisha there, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Verse 8, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word. It is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he, that's Naaman, went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. 
Verse 15, then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, that's the king of Syria going into the house of an idol named Rimmon, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, uh, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, that is Elisha said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But but, but he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence like a leper. He went out from his presence a leper like snow. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Living God, we ask that you would help us to hear your holy word with open hearts that we might understand and that understanding we might believe and that believing we might follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor, seeking your glory in everything we do. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our God. Amen. God's grace alone can heal our flesh, our physical flesh, our spiritual flesh. With the rest of our time, let's consider both Naaman's flesh and then Gehazi's flesh. So first, Naaman's flesh. When we meet Naaman here, he's in almost every way at the very top of his game. He leads the Syrian army, which has been winning a lot. He's a great man. He's highly favored by the king. In verse 1, we actually learn this is because God has given him victories. God is sovereign over everything. He's also sovereign over geopolitics and, and wars and things that play out among nations. God has raised up Syria and enabled them to triumph over their enemies, including Israel, including his own people. God has God is the one who has made Naaman a great man. But as we read there, Naaman is also a leper. And his leprosy is probably not what we first think of when we hear the word leprosy, a disease called Hansen's disease uh, in, our, in our day. That's the disease where um, skin loses its sensation and over time flesh can, can even rot. 
The word leprosy in the Bible is actually used for a variety of skin conditions and skin diseases. And so most scholars think that Naaman had something like psoriasis or shingles or some kind of condition like like that. But whatever the specifics, it's this one massive blight on his record. Naaman is a great man with a flesh problem. And we quickly learn that his flesh problem is not just skin deep. And some some significant evidences of his flesh, his sinful nature, quickly become apparent in this account. Specifically, we see Naaman's pride. His pride. Naaman is a great man, and he knows it. And so when the king of Syria gives him leave to go and and seek healing, he doesn't just go by himself. He, He brings his entourage, horses and chariots and servants, Ten talents of silver is something like 700 or 750 pounds of silver. 6,000 shekels of gold, it's 150 pounds of gold. So we're talking millions and millions of of today's dollars. And on top of that, ten changes of clothes. I'm thinking Naaman wasn't the guy going to Ross Dress for Less and buying like Van Heusen, you know, like I buy. I'm thinking these were more like Armani suits, like custom tailored suits or for the ladies, like Versace designer gowns or something like that. Ten changes of really nice clothing. And Naaman goes first to the king of Israel. He has this letter from the king of Syria, goes to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel can neither help him nor even conceive of the possibility that he might be healed. We've already seen in this, in this series, there are no faithful kings in Israel in all of these years. This king can't even conceive of the possibility that he might be healed. He just thinks that Syria is setting him up for more military conflict. He thinks it's a trap. But Elisha in that moment sends word, and the king of Israel sends Naaman to him. And here's where we really start to see Naaman's pride. As a great man, as a wealthy man, he thinks that that he can dictate the terms of his healing. And he wants his healing to be a big show. He wants it to be a spectacle. He thinks that an important public man like himself deserves an important public healing. But God's healing comes through humility. It always does. God's healing comes through humility and humbling. One of the refrains of Scripture is that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so for God to heal Naaman's physical flesh and spiritual flesh, he first here needs to expose his pride and to humble him. So instead of Elisha, the great prophet of Israel, Naaman gets just a messenger. There's no photo op handshake of, you know, the great Syrian general and the great Israelite prophet shaking hands and meeting at the front door. Elisha doesn't even answer his own door. He he sends a servant with a message. And the message itself is, is also an affront to Naaman's pride. He says, go wash in the Jordan River seven times. There's not going to be a public spectacle. You're just going to go take a bath. As a man from Syria and and from its capital, Damascus, Naaman is used to some really high-quality water. The Abana and the Farpar rivers, they were sourced from the melted snows of Mount Hermon. You can kind of picture it as like one of those like commercials for bottled water that you just pay like $10 a bottle for, you know, sourced from the melted snow of Mount Hermon. You know, this, this is the kind of water in Damascus that like if you go into that water and you come out, you might not just be healed, you might look like a Calvin Klein model and shake the water, you know. I never modeled, and I'm sure you can tell that, so I don't know how that works. But the Jordan River, though, on the other hand, was tepid and kind of nasty in most places. 
This would be like telling a Canadian who's used to you know, gorgeous, clear lakes and rivers to come take a bath in the Susquehanna, to head down by Three Mile Island, dip yourself in the water seven times. That's how you'll be, that's how you'll be cleansed. And so we understand here that initially in verse 11, Naaman gets angry and leaves. Pride makes us turn away from the source of our healing. Pride not only makes us think that we deserve a big to-do and that we get to dictate the terms of how things are going to go, pride will actually make us reject the only thing that can actually heal us. And Naaman here is about to learn one of the most scandalous things about the grace of God, that it costs us nothing, that it costs us nothing. It can't be earned. It can't be bought Everything in our flesh, everything in our sinful nature wants to resist and reject that idea. I don't know about you, but, but I want to earn good things in my life. I want to have something to point to about me. I want to I point to how I'm better or more talented or how I've worked harder, and that's why things go well for me. That's why God should do good things for me. But if you approach God with that perspective, you'll never be healed. That, that's the pride God opposes he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to those who realize that there's not a single thing that God needs from them that they can offer God. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, all Naaman needed was nothing, and it's the one thing he didn't have. All Naaman needed was nothing. It was the one thing he didn't have. I, I'm not sure there's a more offensive statement to 21st century educated, hardworking Pennsylvanians than that. All you need is nothing, but it might be the one thing you don't actually have. Even if we acknowledge that God is the source of healing, we still want to earn it. We, we want to point to something in ourselves. We still want to be great and we want other people to see and we want God to see, hey, here are the reasons that I deserve to be healed. God, I need your help. We, we often see grace as assistance. We need divine assistance because we can't do it all ourselves. God, I need your help, at least in some ways, but I'm willing to pay for it. God is going to heal Naaman's flesh, but he also cares about Naaman's flesh. God loves him too much to heal him at a skin-deep level. And so his physical healing is only going to come in conjunction with his spiritual healing. This leprosy is only going to leave his body when he humbles himself, when he's willing to actually make himself nothing and simply receive the grace of God. Men and women, ask yourself this morning, is pride hindering my healing? Is pride hindering my healing? Even if you're someone who looks to God as your healer, even if you're someone who trusts in Jesus as your Savior, what are you still trying to give God in exchange for his grace? What are you still trying to point to in your own life as a reason for why God should heal you? One of the ways I see this play out a lot in, in my own life, but also in many of yours, as I get to serve as a, as a pastor among you, we run from exposure and vulnerability. So we might collectively. We might have some pride about the money that we have. We might have some pride about the positions or the importance that we have, but we have a lot of pride about our reputations. We have a lot of pride about our hard work. We have a lot of pride about our good intentions. And so in our flesh, in our sinful nature, 
Pride hinders healing when it makes us refuse to admit how much help we really need, how desperate we are. Most of us in this room are not afraid of like reading another book or listening to another podcast. We're not afraid of making a plan and following some concrete steps to try to change, but we're terrified of being exposed as needy. We're terrified to give a, a specific, fully honest account of how unrenewed we still are. Friends, to, to experience the grace of God, all you need is nothing. It might be the one thing, though, that you don't have. It's when, in 2 Kings 5, it's when Naaman finally gives up. It's when he humbles himself and goes and washes in the Jordan anyway that his physical flesh is restored. And as we read there, it becomes like a little child's flesh. It's as if he's born again. His physical flesh is restored in conjunction with the death of of his flesh, of his pride. And yet, as the story continues, pride lurks nearby. When Naaman then finally does get to go meet Elisha face to face, he offers Elisha some of the money and the clothes that he brought. Elisha, in this moment, rightly, will not accept a cent of that. It's too important for Naaman in this moment to understand how free grace really is. It's too important for him to know definitively in this moment he cannot pay God back for grace. Likewise, though, for us, pride lurks nearby. We still battle the flesh. We, we keep trying in different ways to earn grace. And so learn from Naaman this morning, God's grace alone can heal. As, as a tangible expression, as a tangible way of pursuing that, risk the vulnerability in your own life of being known. And I would even encourage you this week to tell someone, tell a friend, tell a spouse, tell a pastor about the places in your life where you still need healing. We all have them. So don't let your pride hinder your healing. Risk the vulnerability and discover, maybe for the first time, or maybe discover again, that to receive the grace of God, all you need is nothing. Of course, not everyone loves this idea, especially when it's being offered to the commanding general of an enemy army. And so this healing of Naaman's flesh actually puts Gehazi's flesh, his sinful nature, on full display. So second, let's talk about that. Let's talk about Gehazi's flesh. We've met Gehazi before in a couple passages in, in 2 Kings. He's Elisha's right-hand man. And so he's had a, a front-row seat to the miraculous and, and powerful and surprising work that God has been doing through Elisha. But sometimes, we're seeing here, sometimes it's those with the closest seats that can't actually see. What, what do we learn about Gehazi's flesh, his sinful nature in this passage? Well, on the surface, his sin appears to be greed. It appears to be greed. He, he's a poor prophet's assistant. And he sees here, you can kind of picture like the dollar signs just like pop into his, you know, like in cartoons when the dollar signs would pop into the eyeballs of a character. He sees an opportunity to enrich himself. He's got a new zealous convert with deep pockets. So this is time for him to, to fund the retirement plan of Gehazi Ministries International, right? This is time for him to cash in all the hard work he's been doing, but getting paid nothing for. And so he chases Naaman down on the road back to Syria. He lies to him, he makes up this story, and then he goes home with a couple talents of silver and a couple changes of clothes. But Gehazi's flesh here is actually much more than greed. 
I think it is greed. I think it's more than greed. In his flesh, we're seeing here, is actually a kind of hyper-nationalism. And specifically, a hyper-nationalism that can't stomach the idea that God's grace is also for them, is also for Israel's enemies. Look back at verse 20. That's what actually is bothering Gehazi. He's not really bothered that Elisha healed him. He's bothered that Elisha healed him and didn't charge him. He says there in verse 20, See, my master, Elisha, has spared this Naaman, the Syrian. He's spared him. He's let him get away too easy. He's healed him, and he's let him go back home without paying anything. In the original language, Gehazi refers to Naaman as this Aramean. And there's a nice dose of ethnic and, and racial undertones in that phrase. Now, it's not just a racial issue, so I want to be clear about that. These are enemy nations at war. Naaman is the leader of an enemy's military, and so we can understand that there's some hostility here. Hardly anyone in Israel at this moment would be wishing good things for Naaman. It's kind of like how right now in our world, it'd be really hard to find a Ukrainian that's wishing good things for Vladimir Putin. Is that racism? Well, I guess there could be racism in that, but he's also invaded their country and attacked their country. So it's, not, it's more than that. There's other things going on. Having said that, having said that, consider how different Gehazi's attitude toward Naaman is from the slave girl that we met at the very beginning of this passage. We go past her story really quickly. It's only a couple verses. But think about her life. It's likely her whole family had been killed, maybe in front of her eyes, by Naaman's army. She has lost far more to Syria, to Naaman himself, than Gehazi has. And yet, she wants good for Naaman. She goes out of, no one's asking her for her opinion, her thoughts, or where Naaman might get healed. No one's asking. She goes out of her way to extend grace to him. Gehazi, on the other end, goes out of his way to rob it from him. So here's the thing, church. It's okay to love your people. It's okay to love your country. In so many ways, that's a good thing. But not if it narrows your view of the grace of God. Not if it forms you to think that God's grace is only for you and your people. It's, it's good to have a deep sense of national identity, but not if it oversteps Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where God set his grace, set his favor on one people group so that through them he might bless all the nations of the earth. And not if it oversteps Revelation 5, where for all eternity there will be a great multitude around God's throne from every tribe and language and people and nation. You should love the global grace of God. You should love the global mission of God far more than you love your country. And if you don't, I would say to you this morning, that is your flesh, that is your sinful nature at work. Like Elisha and like Elijah before him, you should fight for faithfulness in the midst of rampant faithlessness at home. You should be a prophetic voice of truth to your own people who are running headlong from God. But at the very same time, you must champion the global grace of God. You rejoice at the very same time in the scandalous but beautiful reality that God's grace is not only for you and yours, but it's for them and theirs. In case you're concerned that I'm reading too much of maybe our current cultural moment back into 2 Kings 5, consider this. It's actually referencing this text that almost gets Jesus killed by the people of his hometown. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is preaching in the synagogue in Nazareth. It's where he's from. It's where he grew up. 
and his preaching is going really well. The people are hanging on his every word. They're marveling, speaking well of him. And then Luke 4, 27, Jesus says, there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. In other words, in this moment, 2 Kings 5, God's grace actually passed over some Israelites. He didn't heal some Israelites that had leprosy, but he did go and heal a Syrian general, an enemy general. So the next verse, Luke 4, 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. If you talk about God's grace and God's blessings for you or your people or the people that you love, you'll be a hero. You'll be a hero. If you talk about God's grace for others, the outsiders, people that that we hate or think it's okay to hate, that's actually a good way to get yourself killed. But that is what the grace of God does. That is what the global mission and the work of God does. It's for all people. Ask yourself this morning, do I love the global grace of God more than I love my country? Do I love the global grace of God more than my country? As you rejoice that God's grace is offered to you, and is offered to your people, rejoice that God's grace is also for all peoples, even those you consider enemies. If not, here's the important thing, if not, you will actually be someone who obscures grace. You will actually become someone who causes other people to stumble. And that's the real depth of Gehazi's flesh, of Gehazi's sinful nature in this passage. Greed, yes. Hypernationalism, yes. Here's the real issue. He tramples all over God's grace. After, after Elisha has taken such care to show Naaman grace cannot be bought, grace cannot be earned, Gehazi literally runs after him, tracks him down, and makes it seem like maybe grace can be bought after all. He, he throws him, at least potentially, right back into that fleshly way of thinking and living. And so as a result, Gehazi is cursed with the leprous flesh that, that Naaman had at the start. And if that consequence sounds harsh to, to your ears this morning, consider that in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus will go on to say that whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, and Naaman, remember, had just had his flesh restored like a little child. Naaman is a little child when it comes to faith. Whoever causes a little one to stumble, it would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and if he were drowned in the sea. Some of the harshest words and consequences in the Bible are reserved for those who obscure God's grace for others, are reserved for those who shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in other people's faces. And so in that sense, actually, leprosy is a mercy for Gehazi. He deserved worse, far worse than this. And now his flesh, his skin, is going to serve as a painful and present reminder of just how big a deal his, his flesh, his sinful nature really is. Men and women, if you are obscuring the grace of God for other people in any way, if you are shutting the door of God's kingdom in anyone's face, if there are individuals or groups of people that you see as too far gone or irredeemable or somehow unworthy of, of receiving the offer of the free grace of God, I beg you this morning to wake up. Wake up to that. God forbid that we would ever rejoice in grace for ourselves and obscure it for others. 
God forbid that we would ever enter into his kingdom and then try to shut the door behind us. And this passage ends with, for the original audience, for sure, for us too, hopefully, would have been an incredibly jolting reversal. The formerly unclean enemy outsider is now clean at the end of this passage. While the formerly clean insider, right-hand man of the prophet in Israel, is now unclean. So allow the grace of God in 2 Kings 5 to scandalize you this morning. His grace alone can heal our flesh. Learn from Naaman's flesh. God's grace is for you. It is for you. In whatever, in whatever you need healing from in your life right now, don't let your pride hinder it. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself even today and receive his grace. All you need is nothing. All you need is nothing. Learn then from Gehazi's flesh that God's grace is also for them, for the enemy, for the outsider. And take great pains in your life never to obscure the grace of God for others. Because church, how much more have we seen, how much more do we know of the grace of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ? Paul will go on to write in Romans chapter 8, for God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could never do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, Jesus Christ came in flesh for our flesh. And by his death and resurrection, he condemned sin in our sinful nature, in our flesh. By his wounds, we are healed. We are healed. He's the one who makes it possible for us to walk not according to the sinful nature, to the flesh, but the Holy Spirit. And then as Paul will go on to write in Titus chapter 2, this grace of God in Jesus Christ appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Not just Israel, not just me and my people, but people from every tribe and language and people and nation. So men and women, today, as we get ready to come to this table, bring your nothing. Bring your nothing. Receive the free grace of God that is held out to you in Jesus Christ. And then rejoice that this grace is not only for you, but for others. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord our God, you have given us the glorious gospel of our risen Savior and Master Jesus Christ. And we confess that time and again, we try to earn it. We try to do something, point to something in our own lives that says, this is why you should give us grace. Forgive us for that. Forgive us for the pride that constantly is lurking. And we ask today that you would truly help us in these moments to empty our hands and come with nothing and receive again the free grace that you hold out to us in Jesus. As we receive it for ourselves, help us to be people who champion it for others, who champion it for the outsider, the enemy, the people who seem too far gone. Help us to be those who rejoice in grace for us and grace for them. We pray that all Jesus in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.